I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 5. We'll pick up the reading of verse 33. You'll find that on page 1095 in your pew Bibles, 1095, Luke 5, beginning at 33, and reading to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins." And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I want to invite you to imagine that you are at a wedding reception. The head table has been introduced. The prayer for the meal has been prayed. Uh, The... uh, Servers from Providence Christian School have put out all the food on the tables, and there's such an abundance that the tables are bowed under its delicious weight. The uh, servers are standing ready at the roast beef with their knives sharpened, ready to diminish the beef slice by slice as they load it on your plates. And there they are waiting. No one stands up to come forward to collect their food. The MC sees this, and he goes to the head table, and he says, what's, what's happening? Why are you not eating this evening? And they say, actually, we're fasting today. Now, you might think that's somewhat peculiar, but you might say, well, perhaps they had such a sumptuous rehearsal dinner last night that they're still full, and they don't have time or space for more food. But then the MC goes around the room from table to table, stand up, let's go, the food's ready, and they all say, we're fasting today. And they say it with a long face and with mournful tones, we're fasting today. Well, you might think that's very strange. Now, I suppose if you were the one paying for the meal and you knew in advance that this is what was going to happen so that you didn't have to provide the food, that that would be a silver lining to this cloud. But if you had paid for the meal and everything was ready and no one ate, that would certainly be amiss. Weddings are times for celebration. There are times of joy and jubilation. At a wedding, the only thing 
that should be in tears is the wedding cake. Everyone else should be bursting out with joy and gladness. Well, that's what our Lord Jesus is saying here about the Christian faith, that it is a religion of joy and jubilation. It's a religion where we ought to be feasting, not fasting. And the occasion for Jesus' teaching on this matter is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees with their scribes, came up to him to ask him a question. Actually, uh, Luke calls them grumblers in the previous section of the Scripture, always finding fault with others. Well, this is what they do with Jesus as well. It's not actually that they ask him a question so much as levy an accusation against him. They say to him, the disciples of the Pharisees, well, they fast. John the Baptist, your forerunner, his disciples fast. But your disciples, they just eat and drink. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your religion? How come you're so slipshod and lackadaisical? How come you don't understand the seriousness and solemnity of being in covenant with God? Why do your disciples not fast? Why do they eat and drink? Now, at one level, you might think that the religious leaders at first glance have… have something in their favor because the Bible actually in the Old Testament did command fasting. That was uh, revealed in Leviticus 16 on the great day of atonement. You'll remember children that day when the high priest would take blood and enter right into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the Ark of the Covenant. Well, on that day, the day of atonement, the people of God were to fast. This is what it says in Leviticus 16. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. And the phrase afflict yourself can also be translated, you shall fast. So they were to abstain from food on that day to help them lament the seriousness of their sins, which needed forgiveness a forgiveness that was wonderfully illustrated by the ritual of the Day of Atonement and with the high priest going into the most holy place and then the other goat being sent into the wilderness to typify the carrying away of the sins of the people of God. On that day, they were commanded to fast. And it's true that there are other records of fasting in the Old Testament Scriptures Moses fasted when he received the Ten Commandments from the Lord twice. When there were great times of calamity or disaster or when the threat of another nation coming against them, sometimes in these times of emergency, the people would call together the nation to pray and to fast. And in the New Testament, you see fasting as well, that Jesus fasted before his temptation with the devil, and the Apostle Paul, after his encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he too fasted. But the point is that in the New Testament and Old Testament, there's only one command to fast, and that's on the Day of Atonement. It's true that fasting was practiced in other places, but it was never commanded except the once 
Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. But by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees had made fasting a matter of obligation and religious duty. Perhaps their reasoning was like this. If the Lord commanded His people to fast one day a year in the Old Testament Scriptures, and that pleased Him, then how much more pleased would the Lord be by us if we fasted more often? And so in Jesus' day, it was common for Pharisees to fast regularly as part of their religious duty. Remember in Luke 18, the Pharisee who thanked God that he wasn't like other people, particularly not like that tax collector, he said that he gave tithes of all that he had, and he fasted twice a week. It had become a point of pride. We're fasters. We take our religion seriously. And their fasting was accompanied by solemnity and mourning. There was no place in the Pharisees' life for a religion of celebration and joy. Well, you saw that last Lord's Day in the story of Jesus calling Levi and then celebrating with Levi and other tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the the uh, Pharisees, they were uh, party killers. If they couldn't be a part of the party, they would make sure to make every effort to shut a party down. There was no joy in their religion. It was serious, man. It was solemn, not something to be messed around with. They thought that God liked long faces and bristled if any face should break out inadvertently in a smile. But Jesus is no killjoy. He's no spoil sport. Jesus is not one who wants you to be as miserable as you can as a mark of your Christian faith. No, Jesus wants you to celebrate and to be glad. That's what he says in response to these accusations in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is, of course you can't. And what Jesus is saying is that this is a day of joy. My arrival has opened up the floodgates of God's grace. This is a new age, a new era, and it's an explosion of grace that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, things are going to be different. There's going to be new things that, uh, that are unheard of. The blind are going to receive their sight. The deaf are going to hear. Those in prison are going to be released. The good news is going to be preached to the poor. This is a day of new beginnings, a day of celebration and joy because... The bridegroom has come. Well, to understand that illusion, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, the Lord talked about this day, the coming of Jesus Christ, and, and He used matrimonial language to help the people understand it. They, they were told in the Old Testament that God was going to bring judgment on them because of their sins, that they were going to be carried over into exile. But they weren't going to die in exile. God was going to revive them and restore them and bring them back to the promised land. And more importantly, God was going to bring them back to Himself. And this is what it says in Hosea. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me 
my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. There's going to be a renewed love and devotion between God and His people. They were going to be married in grace. In fact, God says to His people, I will betroth you, engage you, commit myself to you forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Uh, There's a day coming, God said in the Old Testament, when someone will say to Jesus, will you take this woman as your bride? And will say to the church, will you take this man as your husband? There's a day of wedding, of celebration coming. And Jesus said it has begun because the bridegroom has arrived. Or think about what he says or what God says in Isaiah 62. Again, talking to the people of Israel after their exile because of their sins, God promises that you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And then, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus is saying, the bridegroom has come. It's a time for feasting, for celebration, for joy, for gladness, because the bridegroom rejoices in his bride. So shouldn't the bride also rejoice in the bridegroom? Jesus says the bridegroom is here. Can you make the wedding guests fast while he is with them? Of course you can't. But what is it about this bridegroom that makes it such a joy and delight to be anticipating marriage with him. Well, Jesus alludes to that in verse 35. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, he's saying that uh, the Christian faith is predominantly a, a faith of joy and celebration, but that doesn't exclude fasting. He's talking about the day coming when the bridegroom is taken away, and then the people will be sad. Well, when was that day? Well, the language of taken away means taken away by force or violently. And it's a referral, and it's the first referral in Luke's gospel to the upcoming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day coming, Jesus says, when, when I'll be violently taken away, when I will die. And on that day, people will fast. Just think about what it says here in Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, this is talking, of course, about the Messiah. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So, the, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah, who was also the bridegroom, he would die for, the, for his people. He would give his life for the sake of his bride. And Jesus is saying, that's going to happen, and then you will fast. 
And that makes sense, of course, because the Old Testament fast was on the Day of Atonement, the, the day when the forgiveness of the sins of God people, God's people by the death of the animal and the shedding of blood was pictured. And Jesus is the ultimate Day of Atonement sacrifice. So it makes sense that when He goes to the cross, when He is taken away, it makes all the sense in the world that His people would fast on that day. And it's that day of fasting that leads to a life of feasting and joy and celebration. Some of you children might have those little cars in your home where you you pull them back and then release them, and then they tear forward. And uh, when you pull them back, you're just loading the spring. Well, well, that's what Jesus is saying here. There's going to be a day of fasting, of grief and sorrow and sadness because you're going to see the bridegroom going to the cross, bearing the sins of his people, and who cannot but feel heavy because of that? But those days of fasting, of sorrow and sadness at what Jesus has come to do is going to lead to a lifetime and an eternity of joy and blessing and happiness and gladness and rejoicing. You see, the celebration of the bridegroom is not just because he is here, but because he is here to wash away our sins and to cleanse us from all our impurities and to make us as white as the wedding dresses our brides marry in in our culture. That's why it's a time of feasting. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and there, there's just no room now for fasting because the news is too good. The anticipation is too grand. It is so glorious that the bridegroom has come. And then Jesus tells them three parables. Actually, he tells them one parable in three parts. And what you'll notice about these three parables or these three parts of the parable, is that they contrast old and new. You can see that in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Verse 37, not garments but wineskin. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does the new wine, because it will ferment, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be filled, and the skins will be destroyed. And then verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, what is the contrast between old and new? Now, you might think that the contrast is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that would be wrong. Because if you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, and, and, and we've done that in a variety of ways by singing some of the Psalms, and if you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament religion was a religion of joy, right? You're to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with joy, Psalm 100. Uh, the nations are, Psalm 47a, are to clap their hands for joy because God is our King. And, and remember what happened in, in Nehemiah 8 when the people of God had heard the reading of the law by Ezra and his fellow priests. And, 
And they were all weeping because they recognized where, where they had fallen short of what God had commanded them. And, and then the leader said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what Ezra is saying is is the same thing Jesus is saying. No, this is a day of fasting. Oh, sorry, this is a day of feasting, not fasting because of what God in His grace has done for sinners. Or or think about what it says at the end of Psalm 30. This is marvelous. And you can take it to yourself if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can say, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So it's not that the Old Testament is a, is a book of gloom and sadness, and the New Testament is a book of joy and gladness. No, no, the Old Testament commands us and calls us to, to joy. Of course, it, it will not be the same joy because it's the joy of anticipation rather than the joy of reality and experience, but there's joy in the Old Testament because the king is coming, the bridegroom is on the scene. He's ready to arrive. And then in the New Testament, it's the realization of all the promises of God. There's joy. There's, in the Old, there's joy unspeakable and full of glory in the New. So the contrast here is not between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's my point. But the contrast is between the religion of the Pharisees and the religion of Christ. The Pharisees' religion and the Christian religion are incompatible. They don't belong together. You can't tear a a, a piece off the gospel of joy and somehow patch it and mix and match it with the Pharisee religion of works righteousness because it just won't fit. You'll actually ruin both. You'll tear the new, and it won't match the old. You can't take the, the new wine of, of the gospel of gladness in Jesus Christ and, and pour it into the old wineskins of gloomy moping, I need to work harder and do more, religion of the Pharisees. Because they'll just blow those, that, that, that religion to smithereens, and it, it, it will also ruin, if you can, the gospel. You can't mix and match these two religions. No, you must recognize their incompatibility because the religion of grace far outshines. It's in a different category altogether, the religion of law. The religion of the Pharisees was do, do, do. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I have. The religion of Christ is done, done, done. Be glad it's taken care of. Your sins have been covered. Your impurities have been removed. The gospel is good news. Now, not everyone sees that. That's what Jesus says in the last 
part of the parable, verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. There are some people who have been raised on a religion of do. I must impress God. I got to read my Bible. I got to pray so much. I got to be in church twice every week. I got to do my duty before God. And when they hear the gospel of grace that Jesus has paid it all, all to him we owe, when they hear that sins are forever banished because of what Christ has done by his death on the cross, they don't like that. It doesn't sit well with them. They say, no, I, I like the old. The old is better. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying it directly to these Pharisees because there weren't many Pharisees who came to Jesus in faith because they were quite content with their old religion, their old grumpy religion that made them walk along with mournful, long faces, having to do another good deed to somehow impress God so that they would receive His grace. Jesus, no, the gospel is, just blows that all out of the water because the gospel is good news and it calls for celebration and joy and gladness. So here's the question for, for you this morning. Are, are you a feaster or are you a faster? Is your life characterized by joy and happiness? Or are you just grumpy, finding fault with everything, never rising to ecstasy and delight and happiness? Does your face ever break out in a smile? Now, I'm in no way attempting to diminish the sadness that marks so much of our lives. It's a hard world in which we live. It's a veil of tears through which we must travel. Sadness because of sin marks our lives and mars them in so many ways. Broken relationships people treating us unkindly and unfairly, speaking evil of us, disappointments in life, wishing we could be married, but the Lord hasn't given us a spouse, wishing we could have children, but the Lord hasn't given us children. And then there's sickness of the mind and of the body. There's grief. There's the loss of loved ones. What a what a sad world this is. No wonder Paul says the whole creation just groans and, and we groan too. I, I'm not suggesting that uh, if you're ever sad in life, your Christianity is suspect. Of course not. This day is a day of sadness, and we will enter into the fullness of of joy when Christ returns in glory. But what I'm talking about is your relationship to the Lord and your understanding of how you're made right with God. Because you know you're a sinner. You've fallen short. You've disobeyed Him. You have only the expectation of judgment. But when you think of God and your status with Him, what characterizes your life? Is it feasting or fasting? Pharisees were fasting. They were fasters. Not that they didn't believe in grace. Oh, yeah, they believed in grace. But grace comes to those who do their best. 
Grace helps, or God helps those who help themselves. And so their lives were characterized by doing. I need to fast. I need to keep the commandments. I need to not break any of the commandments. I need to do more, do better, try harder, stop this, start that. And their life was joyless because they had to flog themselves to, to obey, thinking that through their obedience, God would be impressed. They're like the elder brother in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. You remember the, the son comes home and and uh, the father throws this party for him, and the, old, the elder brother, he's just grumbling. I've slaved for you all these years, and you've never thrown a party for me. Well, that's your problem, brother. You've slaved for me. You've never found the service of God a, a joy and a delight. You've never known me as a generous, gracious father to you. You've only thought of me as I owe him, I owe him, I must do more, I must pay him back for what he's done for me. And if I did throw a party for you, you would never go in, you'd refuse. Because celebration just isn't in your religious category. You're just a morbid, miserable, works righteousness, grumbly Pharisee. That's the old-time religion that Jesus is referring to. But the religion that Jesus brings is a religion of joy and gladness. So it's it's not that we're never sad for our sins. Oh, I, I tell you, if you know the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ, you'll be sadder for your sins than, than if you have that old-time Pharisee religion. Because the Pharisee religion, though they know they're not perfect, they still think they're good enough to, to at least help God in saving them. But If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you've got nothing to stand on, nothing in my hands I bring. And and that that awareness of of your sin, as solemn and sad as it is, is actually liberating and glad-inducing. Because uh, when you have nothing in your hands, then you can cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I've got nothing. Come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left its crimson stain. He has washed it white as snow. Isn't that just great news? Isn't that just glad that, that there's, no, there's no effort that you need to, 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 to expend in order to impress the Lord? God, the righteous judge of all the earth, is absolutely delighted with you because what Jesus has done for you has, has fully covered all your sins and has, and has given you the perfection that His holiness demands. I'm not saying that you don't need to worship and read the Bible and pray and hate sin and to to love righteousness and to to witness to your neighbors. Oh, there's all kinds of commands in the Christian life. Yes, there's duty for us, but it's joyful duty. It's celebratory because we obey our God out of grateful thanks and unimaginable happiness because our Lord Jesus has done it all 
for us. That's what Jesus is saying. We can feast because the bridegroom has come. I mentioned it would be a great sadness if, uh, if you paid for the meal at a wedding celebration and no one ate. We're fasting today. But think about this. The Lord Jesus has paid for your joy. He has come from heaven to earth to make you happy. So don't, don't despise it. Don't resist it. Don't think, nah, the old is good. No, no come to the table of the Lord Jesus. It's, it's bowed with the weight of his grace and goodness. Justification, like a right standing before God, it's there. Adoption into the family of God as one of his children, it's there, it's on the table. Hope of eternal life, one day God wiping away all tears, sin being ended, sadness, it's all there. Jesus has paid for it all. So come to the table of grace and feast, celebrate, and be glad because the bridegroom has come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, what a, what a great God you are. Astonishing. In your mercy and goodness, in your generosity, you didn't have to do anything with us or for us. You were under no obligation to be so kind, but you have been kind in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. And how kind has he been in giving himself to the death of the cross so that we can celebrate all the days of our lives and throughout all eternity. We pray, our God, that you would give us a taste for your goodness and mercy in Jesus Christ and that we might be feasters, not fasters. We do pray for those who are heavy who are burdened and sorrowful because of life circumstances. Do we ask that you would uh, help them to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ so that in the midst of their sorrow they might always be rejoicing. And it's in our Savior, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.